Oh, hi, it's your friend Ellie, and this is Butt Out Baby, a scene-by-scene recap and analysis of the 1987 masterpiece Dirty Dancing, a film that gets a lot of love but not enough respect. Johnny! That's my very bad impression of Jennifer Grey later in the film, but yes, in this scene we finally meet Johnny. First, I will take you through the scene in detail, then we'll pull it apart with my two guests, Morgan and Isabeau from the Womance podcast. Here is your bird's eye view of scene four. At dusk, Baby leaves her family's cabin and crosses the Kellerman's front lawn to take a look around the main lodge. While strolling around its second story deck, she overhears Max Kellerman addressing his dining staff. Hidden in the shadows, Baby gets a literal window into the class divisions between the college-educated staff and the entertainment staff, the latter of which is led by an intriguing dance instructor named Johnny. The granular recap. The camera gives us a long shot of the houseman cabin. Clearly some time has passed since the gazebo dancing, as it's darker now and the porch lights are on. Baby exits the screen door and calls back, Mom, Dad, I'm going up to the main house to look around. I can't remember when this was first pointed out to me, but as Jennifer Grey confidently exits the front door, she turns left, away from the camera, into the darkness at the other end of the porch, then clearly realizes she went the wrong way and turns around. But it happens fast enough that I did not notice for a very long time. The camera follows her as she goes down the stairs onto a stone pathway. She's in a new outfit now. Is a dress with a sweater thrown over it. She trots along the path, she really does trot, and a quiet score plays beneath a piano and strings cover of Time of Your Life. Boo, 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 boo. That's not a string. It's even worse. Possibly foreshadowing who she's about to see for the very first time. The camera turns to watch as she crosses the lawn to the main lodge. All the lights are on inside the building now. A family is ahead of her on the stone path. I'm a little confused as to where they're going because dinner hasn't started yet, as we're about to see. And I can't imagine there's programming like half an hour before dinner. Maybe there's a rec room? Oh, I just realized in real time. They were probably playing out on the lawn and they're probably staying in the main lodge. So they're going in to get ready for dinner. Fascinating. Now the camera is beside Baby as she strolls along the second floor covered balcony, which runs along the front length of the main lodge. She's, you know, looking out at the lake, looking out at the front lawn. We can see the houseman cabin from this view. Then she turns her head towards the building when she overhears Max Kellerman say, There are two kinds of help here. You waiters are all college guys. And I went to Harvard and Yale to hire you. And why did I do that? We're on Baby as she's illuminated by the interior light shining out the window until Max repeats, why? And now the framing is from the inside of the building and shows Baby peeking into the window. And you see her make the quick decision to stay in the shadows so she's not spotted. Now the scene finally cuts into the dining room where we see Max address a semicircle of standing waiters. Couple are sitting at the tables, which are clearly all ready and set up for dinner. It looks very formal. In this scene, the waiters are wearing what appear to be a white, short, formal jacket. The name for this jacket is a mess jacket or an eaten jacket. This jacket basically ends like at like the top of the hips. Like it's really short for a men's jacket. 
It has wide lapels. Um, in this case, they're notched lapels. It also has what could be called a Chesterfield collar, and a Chesterfield collar is like a wide lapel collar, and there's like velvet at the top that goes around the neck, and it's like basically covers the part of a collar that we would think of just as like a standard collar, and then the rest of the lapel is white in this case. The jacket also has a gold stylized kind of scripted K for Kellermans, I can only assume. And that's like a gold color that matches the velvet. Another accent that this jacket has, it has these two decorative rope adornments on the sleeves. They're like close to the edge of the sleeve and there's two pieces of rope that wrap around each arm. The history of this jacket actually does come from military dress, so it seems like that part is like referencing the military history. Basically a mess jacket. It's a formal jacket that ends at the waist, and apparently it became popular in the 1930s as an alternative to like formal dress at black tie occasions. It also became used as a uniform element for students at Eton College. It used to be popular for civilians. The jacket fell out of fashion for kind of high class people because it was co-opted by lower class people. Because this jacket became worn by musicians, uh, workers, waiters, bellhops, it kind of led people who were not in those positions to abandon the jacket because it became associated with like this type of workwear. And then Max says, I shouldn't have to remind you, this is a family place. That means you keep your fingers out of the water, your hair out of the soup, and show the goddamn daughters a good time. The camera cuts back to baby here, and we see her expression change. Her eyebrows crinkle just a little bit. Jennifer Gray's subtle performance here give off a mix of curiosity, suspicion, concern. We're back on Max, and he says, All the daughters, even the dogs, all the daughters, even the dogs. We'll definitely talk about that line later. Then he says, schlep them out to the terrace, show them the stars, romance them any way you want, but the thing, and he's cut off by Johnny. Got that guy? thing to do. Hey, hold it! Every time I rewatch his entrance, part of me expects this kind of sound effect. Johnny's wearing a tight-fitting t-shirt. It's like a gray-green color and has a really subtle stripe. It's like just as though the weave of the fabric changes when there's the stripe. And the shirt is also very close-fitting. The sleeves are quite short, so his biceps are super visible. Like, we're really meant to see his body, I would say, in this t-shirt. Like, his muscles are visible, his chest is visible. He's not hiding anything. Johnny's hairstyle is something called the ducktail. It was a common men's hairstyle in the 50s and I guess into the 60s. Basically, it's kind of like John Travolta in Greece kind of style, like sides are slicked back and then the front's kind of like loose and fluffy. In Johnny's case, it's a little bit longer at the back than maybe you would commonly see, but maybe that's just telling us that he like needs to get a haircut or something. Johnny also has a black leather jacket that is very like casually slung over his shoulder. He has a real saunter. We're back on baby. And as Morgan and Isabeau point out a little bit later, I never noticed before that upon seeing Johnny for the first time, she blinks once in startlement, her eyes widen, and then she opens her mouth in what looks like a slight gasp. 
I can only imagine she looks like I did when I once spotted Naomi Klein in a restaurant like 10 years ago. If you don't know who she is, she's a pretty well-known Canadian lefty intellectual best-selling author. And honestly, I didn't think I had any particularly strong feelings about her, but for some reason I was so taken that I could not stop staring and clearly she had noticed because when she got up to go to the bathroom, she actually made eye contact with me and waved. But basically Jennifer Grey's performance is that look of unexpected intrigue and attraction. Very exciting. Now we're back on Johnny, whose grin has faded, as he can probably anticipate this is not going to be a pleasant conversation. Because Max is like, hey, hold it, hold it. Well, if it isn't the entertainment staff. Listen, wise ass, you've got your own rules. Dance with the daughters. Teaching the mambo, the cha-cha. Cut back to baby, intrigued. Back to Johnny, clenching his jaw during the rest of the speech. Anything they pay for. But that's it. That's where it ends. No funny business, no conversations, and keep your hands off! I just noticed the guy behind Johnny to the right does a very comical eye roll at this. Then Max turns and marches away. Over his shoulder, we hear the guy on the other side of Johnny joke. It's the same thing at all these places. Some ass in the woods, maybe, but no conversation. And there's some laughter from the other entertainment staff. And we're back on Baby, who blinks, which seems like further bewilderment at this peak at casual locker room misogyny. It looks like Baby might fully step away from the window at this point, but then she lingers for a moment and sees Robbie address Johnny. So you think you can keep that straight, Johnny? What you can, can't lay your hands on? Johnny sighs and shakes his head and retorts. You just put your pickle on everybody's plate, college boy, and leave the hard stuff to me. As Johnny's saying the end of that line, he runs his hands across the dinner table Robbie had been setting up, knocking over all the carefully displayed napkin pyramids. Then we see Baby finally leave her vantage point. She's seen all she needs to see here. She's like the First off, why don't you just both introduce yourselves and then tell the listeners about Womance. All right. Um, Well, I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And we co-host a podcast called Womance about romance novels. Each week we either read a chapter of a public domain romance. So we've done Jane Eyre. Right now we're working on Pride and Prejudice. Or we discuss a romance novel a published romance novel, contemporary, historical, vintage, brand spanking new. And uh, through that, we talk about actually our society and culture at large, as well as, and a lot more prevalently, ourselves. (laughs) I found out about the book Strange Love from your podcast, which is like, I don't even know how you describe it. Well, I will give it a shot now so you know what the heck we're talking about. Strange Love by Anne Aguirre. It's a romance novel between a human from Earth named Beryl, who is accidentally abducted by an alien named Xyler, and Beryl is taken back to Xyler's planet and has to partake in a ritual to become his life partner. The very important bit here is that Xyler is like a genuine alien 
who looks like a giant insect mixed with a bird. And all of Goodreads is like, the sex scenes are surprisingly hot. I haven't actually read it. I like bought it and sent it to my friend who's in the Yukon. And I was just visiting her this weekend and she hadn't read it yet. And her friend was over and I'm like, okay, I'm going to find the sex scenes and read them out loud to you guys. (laughs) Nice. Like throbbing thoraxes. Totally, like the phalange, like the feather things between the like long alien finger apparatus. Oh my God, that is like. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are great sex scenes to read without context. I hope you just told them like, this is a romance novel and I'm reading sex scenes and mention nothing about like intergalactic insectoid species. <laughs> I did read out loud to them before I started the, um, not the acknowledgement, the dedication. It was like to her friend who also loves alien jelly roll. <laughs> it was my friend's friend's birthday. And I was telling her that like, what I try and do on my birthdays is do something, even if it's really minor, like something I've never done before. And so she was like, well, I've never like had alien erotica like read to me before. I'm like, <laughs> here we go. Happy birthday. <laughs> it was your conversation that convinced me. There's no way if someone just like gave me a summary that I would be interested in anything like that. So you two are very convincing and also like very good at describing sensual sex scenes. Thank you. I wish I could put that on my resume because I too have found that this is a skill I have grown over the course of this podcast. And like, I don't know how to be like, I can talk about sex in a way that's earnest, true and critical. Please hire me for jobs. (laughs) Seriously, that is such a skill. The chat bots haven't learned how to do that yet. So maybe, you know, you'll survive the AI singularity. <laughs> well, <laughs> Romance will be the last pod- human run podcast left on the planet. <laughs> it's possible. Okay. So getting back to Dirty Dancing, what for each of you to answer, what is your relationship to the movie if you have one? Oh my God. It's, I have a pretty intense relationship. Ditto. Uh, first time I watched it was with my mom and my aunt and my older cousin and it was her favorite movie and she was like 16 and I think I was like nine. I remember my mom covering my eyes for the sensual parts and then my aunt covering my cousin's eyes and she was like, I'm 16! (laughs) That's one of my most vivid memories of it. But then I just kind of watched it. Um, I would say at least... Once a month from the ages of of nine to um, now, not now, but (laughs) until I was like 16. I was obsessed. Patrick Swayze was beautiful. I came to this via Patrick Swayze. So as a very young child, I was obsessed with the movie Ghost inappropriately enough. My parents just like, it was my favorite movie from the time I was four until I was 10. My mom was like, you really love Ghost, which is weird. And you really love Patrick Swayze, which is normal. I know you haven't seen Dirty Dancing. Let's watch that. And my mom had forgotten how bad the illegal abortion scene with Penny is. And so like the shaking and the crying. And so like, I'm like, what is happening? And it's very clear that my mom like wasn't prepared to have the conversation with me about abortion, what it meant. And like the idea that this doctor had like a dirty knife and a folding table. So she like did her best. And I was of course immediately like, well, abortion is healthcare and like (laughs) nobody needs to end up like Penny. And um, I proceeded to share that movie 
be at a sleepover without telling anybody's parents because my mom had okayed it. And I'm the youngest of four. So like also my mom's view of like what was age appropriate was probably not what my friends thought was age appropriate. So I know that when I was 11, she definitely got a phone call about Dirty Dancing being not appropriate for my friend group at the time, which of course just made everybody want to watch it at my house all the time. So then I would walk to the family video and rent it on my mom's account. And then we would all watch it at sleepovers at my house as the illicit film. So I'll just ask you, like, off the top, what was your first impressions generally rewatching this scene? I mean, generally, I forgot how mean the owner is. Like, I think in my candy apple memory, like, he's less that. And so, like, the classism part of it um, really struck me on this watch. Like, that's always obviously the, like, major overtone, but just, like, the, I went to Harvard to get you, so, like, dance with the daughters, even the dogs, and then, like, you, entertainment, have a different role. That struck me, this rewatch. Yeah, in the, um, the, in the original screenplay, the dialogue's pretty similar, but, like, when I was re-watching and listening to the scene today... He does begin with saying, Max Kellerman begins with saying, there are two kinds of help here. Like you are all college guys. And I went to Harvard and Yale to hire you. And why did I do that? Why? I shouldn't have to remind you this is a family place. That means you keep your fingers out of the water, your hair out of the soup and show the goddamn daughters a good time. All the daughters, even the dogs, schlep them out to the terrace, show them the stars, romance them any way you want. Is that weird? Like even before getting to Johnny, is that weird that he's like telling his staff that they should he, they should be romancing the daughters? Like, yes, that's very weird. That's super weird. It's weird that that would be baked into the experience of like going to the Catskills. This, th- but to me, this is like a, a, a indicative of like this whole other weirder part of Dirty Dancing, which is like. It's supposed to take place in, like, the 1960s, right? Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to take place at, like, a summer camp in the Catskills. And I don't think I ever had a grasp of setting in all my many viewings until I was much older. Yeah. And it it's almost unstuck in time. Like, it kind of reminds me of It Follows, which is intentionally supposed to be unstuck in time. But Dirty Dancing just is that way. I think one of the things that I noticed in this first impressions is how much, how deliberately we're put in baby's perspective. Yeah, it is a weird conversation. It does seem like of a time and place, but it's not a time and place that is super tangible if you're just like casually viewing Dirty Dancing. I I don't think. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause like, he's like, I went to Harvard and Yale to hire you Why? Because Harvard and Yale guys are appropriate for the girls, are impressive enough for the girls. Yeah. Impressive enough for the parents and appropriate for the girls. Like they're like the conversation about how these families are interacting, like for such simple dialogue, like it's like turning a lot of gears in terms of like the clientele and like what kind of experience the clientele expects at this. Like also just the idea of like, 
adult families are renting cabins in the Catskills to have these like all inclusive experiences. And like, it just reminded me that there is in one of the seasons of Mrs. Maisel, they they did a cat scale excursion. And I was like, oh, it's just like dirty dancing. And then I was like, no, this was a thing that people did. This was like a total experience. <laughs> I think I think one of the reasons it's so strange that he says, like, I went to Harvard and Yale to get these guys for you to, you know, work as waiters essentially, and like have dalliances or entertain the young ladies, right? I don't think he's explicitly saying like knock boots with these gals, right? Right. I think he's just saying like make them feel good, right? Whatever that entails. But I associate people who go on summer long all-inclusive vacations with the Ivy League. And so it's almost like one of the points that's kind of strange is the idea that there would be working class people at Harvard and Yale who needed to have summer jobs. Like part of that is strange. Um, But I think what he's saying there, right, is like establishing that there's a deeper hierarchy. I think Baby is cognizant of like us versus the, the help, as it were. And like she wants to transgress that. But then whenever she gets a little outsider's perspective looking in on the help, air quotes, she realizes that there's this whole other level of nuance. And I think that kind of shocks her. Yeah, totally. This, I mean, this is really early on in the movie, like it's scene four. And like when she meets Max Kellerman, which is just two scenes ago, he's so lovely mm-hmm. and he's like very kind to her dad and all of this stuff. And so very quickly she kind of sees his hypocrisy, like with this scene, which is interesting. Max Kellerman gets cut off when he's like schlep them out to the terrace, show them the stars, romance them any way you want. And then he says, but the thing. And I'm like, what is the qualifier? Like, <laughs> I want to know, like, what is romance them any way you want? Because mm-hmm. like you said, I'm sh- like, like you said, Morgan, it's like, I'm sure he doesn't mean have sex with them. Right. But like, what does he mean? See, I assume the butt was hanging off of uh, don't. Uh have sex with them. I think maybe he does, except like don't get them pregnant. Right. Like that seems to me like where that butt is about to hang. Could be either way. He's like Max's Max has many faces. Ali, can I go back to what you said about like Max's hypocrisy? Because like that was my initial impression. I was like, oh wow, she's seen this guy's true colors. And like, yes, she's seeing his true colors. But I think about like in the previous scene, like is that actually maybe something more like performance? Because I, I think performance is part of dirty dancing. Like she has to learn that she can project a sense of sensuality and attraction with this man that she initially, on at least on a surface level, dislikes, right? And I think maybe Max, rather than being like a liar, is in fact a, a also, like Johnny performing affection <laughs> towards the guests. Yeah. It's a really interesting what you're talking about, Isabel, about this being an all-inclusive experience. Like how much do the guests consciously acknowledge that? Mm. Like all these different layers of entertainment and like showmanship are happening at this resort. She He does, Max Kellerman, in that first scene, he's like, oh, hey, doc, blah, 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 like very friendly. But he does yell at Billy, who's like beside him. He's like, Billy, get the bigs. So you do get a moment where he doesn't even bother to be nice to the kind of working class staff in front of the guests. 
Um, so I guess it's not totally yeah. a new thing for Baby to witness this. But it's interesting that he's referring to the guests as dogs. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the daughters. I remember, like, for a long time, like, I didn't really hear that line or whatever. And then at some point, like, in my teenagehood, I realized he said even the dogs. And I remember just being blown away, like, punched the gut of how horrifying that was for him to say that and how sexist and especially like at an age where I was really insecure like about my looks and stuff like even the dogs oh and it's the way it's cut so I I did a shot by shot analysis because it's um, my favorite most boring thing to do oh please please tell me we start with like a wide shot of the restaurant and it's framed by the French doors, right? Which I think is telling us that we're in baby's perspective because she's like tucked behind them, kind of listening in. And that scene, that wide shot where we kind of get clarity as to like who's speaking and why they're speaking, it cuts back to baby when he says all the daughters. And then it cuts back to a closer shot of him, right? With a lot more clarity. And he, that shot opens with even the dogs. Yeah, it, it feels like a drumbeat almost in the way the shot is happening and switching our perspective from babies and then to see her peeping and then switch back but closer. And the way that the actor says it, he like lowers his voice. He says it from his chest rather than from this part, the the top of his throat where he'd been speaking, like he had a higher register and then suddenly he drops it, even the dogs. And it's like, oof. That is a punch to the gut. That's the important part. That's the serious business. Yeah. And what do you think about the like waiters reactions to that part? Like they kind of like laugh or smile or like roll grimace. Like I can't quite put my finger on what they think about that. Well, and like that's another thing about this scene that like really is that these except for very specific people, there's almost like a chorus and they're all like seemingly almost intentionally obscured the way the shadow is set up, right? Like it's a restaurant that's in the process of getting ready for service, but they're in the front, which is kind of rare for like service prep. And they've turned on only some of the lights. And so I thought the same thing, Ali. I was like, it's so hard to tell how the servers are feeling. Like I saw some like lean in towards him and I heard like plates rattle and stuff, but it's hard to tell exactly how the servers feel about it. Whereas later on, it's pretty clear in spite of all sorts of head accessories, how Johnny feels about what the manager is saying, Max is saying. Like, do they feel exploited by this? Or are they just like, this is what I was expecting for my summer job? <laughs> Surely not, right? Like, whenever they were recruited at Harvard and Yale, it wasn't like, I gotta be, I don't think you go to Harvard and Yale to recruit great flirtsmen. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's 1962. It's it's before Kennedy's been shot and she's going to join the Three, Peace Corps. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Why would you, like, you're going to go to Harvard and Yale and study, like, poetry, you know what I mean? It's like, and then you're still going to get a job at Goldman Sachs. When your baby leaves you all alone And nobody calls you on the phone But 
Okay, well, let's move on to Johnny. I guess, yeah, my first question, uh, Morgan, you alluded to it. Why do you think he was wearing sunglasses in this scene? And he's, like, obscured in so many ways. And I think the sunglasses, I was thinking about that because (laughs) I was thinking about the male gaze, which I think you brought up to me, Ellie. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead. No, go ahead. But the idea of the gaze, right? There's something about sunglasses that I feel like really resist objectification, but also sort of lubricates the path towards it, right? Because you can't see their eyes. And like this scene goes through a lot of trouble to obfuscate Johnny. Like when he enters, he walks in from behind a floating shelf with like a vase and a silver serving platter on it. He's wearing sunglasses. He has his jacket over his shoulder. He moves it in front of him as the shots get closer up. He also, at the end, is just carrying a bag of dry cleaning that I didn't notice (laughs) until the very end of the scene in front of him. My theory is, if I were the director, it's to create clarity as to his like restrained disgust whenever Max is talking to him. Because when he's in profile... You can't really see his eyes. You can't really see his like body because of the jacket. But what you can see is his jaw starts clenching during the conversation. And, and there's so much framing and obfuscating happening in this scene with the shadows and the doorways that I think the sunglasses are another way of doing that maybe. Yeah, highlighting the way in which the cheekbone itself and part of the jaw just begins to click. And so the the question that you sent us in the email about like what makes this entrance feel really romance novelty to you, and I was like, well, it's it's that part, right? Like you're right to say that there aren't a ton of meat cutes that happen in sort of a dressing down. That's that's not hyper common. There are plenty of meat cutes where someone is peeping someone else in a moment of like vulnerability or like unexpectedness, but like a a formal dressing down, not, not super common. But the thing that is, it's like the, the telltale sign that someone is internally feeling different than the external expression that they're showing. Like that's romance hero 101. Jaw clenching comes up a lot. Yeah. (laughs) That does come up a lot, but also right. Sunglasses, I mean, he's dangerous and he's wearing them in the evening and we know it's the evening because we've seen the evening all around that he comes swaggering in where and he's walking inside in a dark space and just like keeping his sunglasses on. I mean, it very clearly relays to us that he's uh, dangerous and mysterious and glamorous. He's got it all. And in control of himself, like ruthlessly Mm. in control of himself. Mm. That's a really, really good point. Um, I'm trying to think, what does she, how does she describe him in the script? He moves across the room like a prince of the city. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't either. Doesn't matter. What a good, what a good descriptor. Prince of the city, prince of the city. Here I come. Energy, grace on the brink of insolence. Yep. Commanding glamour. Yep. Nailed it. Man, Patrick Swayze could take a note, huh? Yeah, dude. 
He saw that and he's like, all right. What if he just read Prince of the City and he was like, I've got it. I don't need any. If we're bordering on insolence. No, I had it at Prince in the City. Like, I have it. You don't, I don't need anything else. Thank you. No more details. You're going to bog me down. I'm Prince of the City. Just in terms of the dressing down, and uh, both of you got into this, that like, it just, it does complicate it in that like, he is insolent. So he comes in, as you describe, and then he's like, got that, guys, in a sort of defiant way. But then Kellerman is like, well, if it isn't the entertainment staff, which is so weird. Mm -hmm. And I love that, like, one of them is carrying a golf club yeah. <laughs> to, to indicate oh, that they're the entertainment that. staff. Um, and then he's like, listen, wise ass, you got your own rules. Dance with the daughters, teach them the mambo, the cha-cha, anything they pay for. But that's it. That's where it ends. And when he after he says that, that's where Johnny looks down. And like it has a little bit more of a submissive like posture. And that's probably also the jaw clenching, like no funny business, no conversations and keep your hands off. And I was like, the sunglasses help him not seem totally weak in that moment, even though he's not kind of physically standing up to Max anymore or being mouthy. That's it. Like he's, he's a bit mouthy with got it guys, but then... Um, that kind of ends. And I was like, I wonder if we saw him like kind of submit in that way without the sunglasses, if it would f just feel like a little demeaning or like not as sexy or something, which is fucked up. But like, I don't know. Oh, probably. You No, I think that's so true. It would be like, I think it would be a little bit more ick if he wasn't wearing the sun. If you saw his like downcast eyes, that would have been way worse, way deeper. Yeah, it would have been it would have been hurtful in some ways. Like the the sunglasses also save Kellerman, mm. right? Where it's like the total dress down, like just having that obfuscation, so like you don't fully engage with what's happening in Patrick Swayze's Johnny. That also prevents the last part of the punch from landing, as it might have, as Morgan you just pointed out, which gives space for Kellerman's then, like you know, moves. Yeah. But then, so he says that, and then the other guy in the crew makes that joke. He's like, same at all these places, some ass in the woods, but no conversation. And that's like very bold. And I don't know if Johnny could have got away with that. Like he's sort of more visible, I guess. Well, and I think that's, it's not a very uh, insolent grace thing to say. It's just kind of insolent. True. That's a very good point. <laughs> I think it's uh, definitely to like, it's a tool to cut the tension. And the reason Johnny can't say it, I think, is because Johnny is supposed to be like more dignified than that. And Johnny is like so apart from the rest of the entertainment gang. Like he's wearing a different t-shirt than the rest of them. He's carrying a crisp white shirt, even though he's not wearing um, one. He, like, the waiters are all wearing their crisp white shirts. So, yeah, I think there's something there, Ellie, about how he is above, like, the, this, like, nuance of hierarchy in this scene is is very rich. But also then he's above the fray of, like, the way in which they're being objectively terrible about women like that comment some ass in the woods and no conversation is crass and of a piece with even the dogs 
you know, and there's like, it's just the other side of it. And like, there's a way to read like some ass in the woods and no conversation is it also describes the situation that Johnny finds himself in, which he finds really demeaning that we've learned later in the film. But like, there's there's something here about transaction in both senses, right? Like, take him under the stars, like have this thing, like they're their parents are paying for this experience. And then there's this thing about teach them the mambo, the cha-cha, whatever they pay for, but not the other stuff. And so like that line about some ass in the woods that Johnny wouldn't say because he can't. And like he is definitely the lightning rod for Kellerman. But also it puts him on the romantic pedestal for baby because he didn't say the crass thing. Yeah, I think it's like, is it can't or won't? Like, I think Johnny wouldn't say something like yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I'm thinking about how we meet bad boy characters in romance novels who are otherwise often called, like, rakes. Um, and the ones that we've met, or at least, like, the really good ones, they aren't humbled on the page in the beginning, but they arrive pre-humbled. But usually in this, like, really literal physical sense. And so I think it's interesting, like, there's not a lot of this, like, class transgression that happens in romance novels, at least not in this gendered direction. Like, there's tons and tons of stories about governesses falling in love with, like, the lord of the manor. And there's, like, nothing about dance instructors falling in love with hotel guests, even though... I mean, the clo- like, the one that this reminds me of is... The Proposition by Judith Ivory, but there's a more recent one um, called A Duke Undone, and she's a starving artist, and she sees, and he's obviously rich, so it's, again, it doesn't fit the part, but where he's humbled is she meets him in an alley, and he's drunk and recovering from the night before and just, like, totally passed out. He's, like, naked, and someone's, like, thrown a sheet over him, and she originally thinks that he's dead, and it's, like... Those are the kinds of humblings that we see from our rakish bad boys normally. Like, as Morgan said, there's like, they're not being humbled by someone, they're being humbled by something. Yeah. That's interesting. I was trying to find some intro scenes to bad boys, like from movies around this era. And something, at least in the movies, and I wonder if you guys think this is different because romance novels are written by women for women, is that like... I didn't see them humbled at all. They were like mm. kind of pieces of shit and like they're they're like redeemed by the woman's love or something <laughs> by the end. I think the and I think it's interesting that you bring up four women by women because uh romancing the stone came up for me and he is being physically humbled. All the birds that he's been trying to capture have flown south for the winter cuz he's in the bus accident with Joan Wilder's bus. It was also written by a woman. Okay, I have not seen this movie, and what the fuck plot is that? Oh my god, Romancing the Stone is, like, you obviously need to watch it. It's definitely an 80s rom-com. Okay. When did Dirty Dancing come out? 87. Okay, Romancing the Stone came out in 86 or 87, so it's, like, contemporary. Um, It's Michael Douglas. Other 80s rom-coms, I, I think, are mostly written by men. But the reason why Romancing the Stone immediately came up for me when you said four women by women is I was like, well, that screenwriter is a woman. So that totally tracks because like there is something pleasurable about meeting someone who's really downtrodden, who just like they, on- they only have up to go. <laughs> well, there's also something about like 
being able to trust someone and meet them on a level. And like, Mm -hmm. I think especially with these kind of class stratifications that are happening throughout Dirty Dancing and then, you know, the power dynamic kind of switches to like a physical one and then eventually I think it's important in general in heterosexual things that are appealing to heterosexual women that the male love interest is humbled, right? Is somehow vulnerable, is somehow demonstrably not a predator, (laughs) I guess would be this very like direct way of putting it. Yeah. Um, Okay. The last bit of the scene is the interaction between Johnny and Robbie. Robbie says, can you think you can keep that straight, Johnny, what you can and can't lay your hands on? And then the pickle on the plate line. You just put your pickle on everyone's plate, college boy, and leave the hard stuff to me. Yeah, what do you, well, I mean, what do you make of this exchange? I don't understand the dick joke. Like, even all, after all this time, I still don't get it. Because, like, put your pickle on a plate is obviously a dick joke, right? Like, I'm not being silly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why I tried to ask the chat bot. Um. <laughs> well, like, you, I guess because you get a, a pickle with every sandwich. <laughs> okay, I mean, like, even still, because, like, that's not a joke then. It's just, like, a statement of fact. Rabbi's gross. Like, okay, <laughs> accepted. <laughs> just put your pickle on everybody's plate and leave the hard stuff to me. Is it sort of like just look pretty, like just look pretty for everyone and then I do the real work? And, I, and I'm the one who gets fully erect. <laughs> Hard stuff. I get bricked up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I like there's something there too where like obviously Robbie's insulting Johnny's intelligence and Johnny like brings it back to like you put pickles on plates the work that Johnny does is like he teaches people to dance, but he's also just performing insane amounts of emotional labor. Yeah, for these lonely, lonely ladies. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah, college boy just has to put his pickle on the college girl's plate and Johnny has to be there for the long abandoned mothers. Yeah, the bungalow bunnies. The bungalow bunnies. God, this movie is really misogynist now that like you are putting all of the things in. I got to say, this pickle on the plate conversation, this is why I love the motion pictures, because when it's written out, when it's stated to me on a Google Hangout, yeah, it sounds dumb. But when Johnny says it and then knocks a neatly folded linen napkin on the floor and smirks and cowboy John Wayne ass is out of there. I'm like, yeah, deal. (laughs) What a sick bird. Yeah, deal with it, Robbie. Keep putting your pickles on plates. Honestly, the napkin being knocked over is like the sickest bird. (laughs) It's like truly like a very gentle rebellion. (laughs) exactly yeah that's what i was gonna say like as if he can make knocking over a napkin look badass <laughs> and he does and he does and like you and the other thing is like you can hear his i mean body of a dancer right you can hear the gentlest tinkling of the silver against the crystal as it barely brushes while the napkin falls perilously to the floor it's true it's, <laughs> it's beautiful it's poetry is what it is. That's lovely. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay. 
I don't actually want to record too long because I'm lazy and don't want to edit a bunch of shit. I get um, that. So <laughs> let's kind of cap this off soon. I just wanted to ask you guys one more. Well, first of all, is there anything left you wanted to comment on any of the stuff we talked about before? Before I ask you kind of my last question. I think the only other thing that we haven't brought up into this conversation of like Johnny is and the framing of the ticking jaws that the the pullbacks that we then get of baby peeping him from the shadow and behind the French doors. And I think like the move between her and shadow, his dressing down, like it's important that we don't get it from her perspective. We're getting it from like a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. And then we see her as like the voyeur of the scene, Mm -hmm. which gives it distance for baby, but also like, gives us distance from her too so it makes her like kind of a strange little agent in this little drama she tells us what to feel about what she's seeing because she like recedes and is like repelled during the initial conversation and then johnny walks in and is goofy as he might be out of context we see her lean forward and her like lip drop open and so we know that he's like oh he's a very very attractive person has just entered the chat you know (laughs) but I, I think it's also doing something towards this point that I think is really important which is like does the female gaze exist and like I I'm not sure if it does but right the male gaze seeks to objectify and I think Johnny in this scene is very much like subjective to baby. Like we see how he feels even while he's wearing sunglasses, even while he's wearing a tight t-shirt. We're let in on the fact of his like his deep feelings about his labor and his relation to the world. And, you know, even those like subtle nuances, like he's not the one to make the joke about having sex in the woods or whatever what he doesn't say, like all of this as um, Johnny is resisting objectification while in the perspective of, in baby's perspective, which is where we are. Wow. Thank you both. You both are much better. Something I'm not good at with movies is is thinking about the shots and stuff like that and how, what they're saying. Um, so this is great. Okay. My last question I was interested if you two could explain how you define a romance story. And it's something like, like, we're not at the end of this movie. So, you know, that's probably a discussion for when the movie's over, but whether this qualifies as a romance story. But I'm like interested in having people keep that in the back of their mind as they listen. And I've found your like debates about whether like persuasion was a true romance story or not really interesting. And so maybe you can kind of give give the listeners your definition and that's something we can think about as the podcast goes on. Well, my definition of a romance is that the central mover of the story is um, a love story between two characters, which means the reason that they, part of their character growth has to be relative to their relationship with another person. I think that's what's key. I think a hundred percent dirty dancing is that kind of story. I think her coming of age-ness is very much tied up into getting to know Johnny and eventually falling in love with Johnny and becoming like a different, more nuanced person because of it. And that's ditto for Johnny, right? Like his ability to learn how to say no and have confidence in himself. Like, right, there's a difference between Johnny's bravado in this scene and how we see him later. 
And part of that is because of the interactions that he's had with baby and being able to see himself the way that she sees him, which I think is also key Mm -hmm. in a romance where it's like you are granted the special, important perspective of someone who loves you seeing you. And that changes in a romance your perspective on yourself. And like, isn't that just... Isn't that just the dirty dancing in a nutshell? Oh my God, that was beautifully said. Thank you. I've been thinking about this because of this scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, Jane Austen. They can't all be winners. Dirty dancing, <laughs> romance, gold star. Gold star. That's so interesting. I wasn't actually sure you guys would say it was. Anyways, we can. I, I, I would love to have you back on for some of the more like sensual, sexy scenes down the down the road. Oh my god! Please, Please do. Obviously, I still haven't seen them, so it'll be exciting. <laughs> She's for just me. watched them. Oh yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh my god! No, oh, that's not true. That's not true. The minute my family went to sleep, I replayed it. Rewind. <laughs> On the like noisy VCR, like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, this was so much fun! Uh, Thank you so much, Ellie. Yeah. Many more hours of Morgan and Isabeau's smart and funny romance story thoughts, do check out their podcast, Womance. For the debrief for this scene, I'll get into the changes from the screenplay, talk about some specific examples of how the bad boy character is usually introduced in film, and actually let me know if you have any memorable examples. I'll also watch Romancing the Stone and give you my thoughts on that. As always, thank you for listening. 